Let's, um, there, there are Bible, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are, um, as you, if you have a Bible, you open up to Nehemiah 3 and just take a glance, you'll see, I'm not going to put every verse up there, um, it, it's, it's really about a lot of names and, and people building the wall, but uh, there's some principles we're going to draw from that, so you really need a Bible, if you don't have one, um, there are some in the back, I'm going to dismiss the kids, if you're not sure um, where to find it in the scripture, somebody next to you can show you, or in the front, uh, it tells you all the list of the books of the Bible, Nehemiah's in the Old Testament. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 3. So kids, you're dismissed. And um, if you want to make believe you're going out with the kids, grab a Bible, that's okay too. And then come on back in. We're in a series called Ezra, Nehemiah, the gospel of Ezra and Nehemiah. And as I said, we're in Nehemiah chapter 3. At first glance, if you're looking at Nehemiah 3, just take a quick glance through, you see a lot of names. It's like a Hebrew phone book, right? But there are a lot of principles that we can draw from that. It's not just simply about people building a wall, some gates in a foreign city or in some specific geographical location. It is much more than that. That's why we do expository preaching. We go through books of the Bible, go through all of Scripture, because the Bible says of itself that it is, the Scripture is God-breathed profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, all scripture, that the man of God may be complete, woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if God puts it in scripture, there's a reason, and hopefully we can learn from it, okay? So I'm going to just read for you chapter 3. We're not going to read the whole chapter for you. Um, As you just take a quick look, you can see why. Um, And I'm going to do it really fast and very confidently so you think I know exactly how these Hebrew words go. (laughs) chapter 3 in Nehemiah, I'm going to read, let's read um, 12 verses, because the rest of it kind of follows, I want you to get a flavor of the passage that we're dealing with, then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the priest, and they built the sheep gate, they consecrated and set its doors, they consecrated as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of the Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to him Zachar, the son of Imri, built. Verse 3, the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of... If, you're having a, uh, if you have any question of any names you're looking for your children, this is the place to look for. <laughs> Meshullam, the son of Barakiah, son of Meshazabel, repaired. And next to them, Zodak, the son of Bana, Repaired. Verse 5, if you lost me. Uh, and next to them, the Tekoites prepared. But the nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Or, or their, their, yeah, their, their lord. Joida, the son of Pesah, and Meshalam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them was Melatiah and Gibbonite and uh, jo- you can see why we're not going through the whole chapter, Jodan and Maranathite. The men- no matter how many times you go through this, I read this a hundred times this week, it still don't make it easier, just so you know. The men of Gibeon and the men of Mizpah, the seat of the governor and the providence beyond the river. Verse 8, next to them, Uzel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired next to him. Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramuth, <laughs> repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Verse 11, that's a tough one. Malchiah, the son of Haram, and Hasub, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of Ovens. Next to him, verse 12, to close, Finally, thankfully, Shalom, the son of Halash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. So you could see why. Uh, we'll not read. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate that. <clears throat> okay. Now remember, we're in 444 B.C., 445 B.C., God raises Nehemiah, a, a man who was once in the exile, who's now been called to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. As I said, it's much more than just a building project. It's even more than just 
a caricature or a picture of, of, of a leader. Many, many people have taught the book of Nehemiah and taught a lot about the principles of leadership, and they're there. The rebuilding of the wall is there. But this book really is about the promise, the promise-keeping God who restores his people. You guys are check one, two. You guys got me cranking. This book is about the promise-keeping God who restores his people as they anticipate the coming of the one who would enter this great city, who would enter into the new built walls, who would enter into this restored temple that we read in Ezra, the God-man, who was rejected and hated and scorned and then crucified and then as promised three days later rises from the dead, just as God said he would. It was Jesus who told the religious leaders, the Bible thumpers of his days, that you search the scriptures, you search diligently in the Old Testament scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is them, it is the Old Testament scriptures that bear witness about me. So it's about Jesus. He's the hero of this narrative. So as we study this wonderful book about the restoration of the walls, about the revitalization of the, pe- revitalization of, the people of God, let's never forget that the hero of scripture. The one scripture points to is Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior. And God does not share his glory. So let me quickly bring you up to speed. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Chapter 1. He's in exile. One of his brothers comes, Hanani, and says to him that the city and its gates uh, is destroyed by fire. There's a mess. They're in trouble and they're in shame. Nehemiah hears this message and just breaks. He's, he's weeping, he's crying, he's praying, and he's fasting for four months. The walls are torn down, which means the city is is unsafe. It means that the city's walls not only are destroyed and they're unsafe, but it's bringing shame and scorn upon God's people. To understand how important the Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was, the walls of Jerusalem, this place, to understand how important it was to the Jewish people, listen to what King David in one of his Psalms, 48, writes. This is what he writes. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, which is Israel, in the far north, the city of the great king within her citadels. God has made himself known as a fortress. Excuse me, very important to the people of God. So while the walls lay in ruin, they brought shame and and reproach against the name of their God. I've said this a few weeks ago. I believe that Nehemiah in the spirit of Jesus saw the brokenness of the city and wept because he's seen a people in despair and it broke his heart. He saw that people desperately needed to see and to savor the glory of God. And when he saw the brokenness of the people, it just broke his heart. And in chapter 2, he moves into action. Chapter 2 is all about action. He moves and he's praying through this response to the king. He needs to wait and to to pray until God opens a door to talk to his king to get what he needed to get to travel to Jerusalem. He receives permission. He receives protection. And then the king gives Nehemiah everything he needs for this rebuilding project. And then he leaves the city. Last week we ended with Nehemiah going into the city of Jerusalem and the first thing he did was rested. Then he surveyed the project, looked around the walls, and then he enlisted people to help him in building and then he stood up against some opposition and we ended in chapter 2. He's standing up against Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab. It's amazing, some things never change. Chapter 3 now is the beginning of that work being restored. So if we were to to look at this, we would say Nehemiah chapter 1 is the relationship between Nehemiah and his God as he breaks and he weeps and he cries. Nehemiah chapter 2 is about a relationship between Nehemiah and his boss as he beseeches his boss to give him what he needs to go and do the work that God has called him to do. Chapter 3, the relationship between Nehemiah and those who will help him build the walls of Jerusalem. So as we go through this passage, we'll look at it under three headings. The first one is a common purpose. There's a commonality in the purposing uh, that, that Nehemiah calls these people to join him. It's a common purpose. Then we'll see a community of workers working together. And then we'll end with a communion meditation as we go to communion. So that's where we're at. Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1. We see the chapter opening up with Elisha, the high priest. Rose up with his other brothers, the other priests that were there in Jerusalem. And they built the sheep gate. It says they consecrated it. They set it apart. 
It's the only gate that has been said to be consecrated. They consecrated and set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of the Hanel. It's two towers. Verse 2, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zuchar, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. Now, let me just, let me just point out to you a, a, a quick, cool factoid here. Elishab, Eliashib, was the grandson of Jeshua the high priest. And you're thinking, so? I would too. Because you probably don't remember, but Jeshua, Yeshua the high priest, or Jeshua the high priest, was one of the leaders that we read about in Ezra chapter 2, who with Zerubbabel started this whole work to begin with of the temple. So when, if you remember, Ezra 1 opens up with King Cyrus and, and a decree to send the people back to Jerusalem after seven years of captivity. And the first six chapters are based, when they rebuild the, the, the rebuilding the, the worship center, the, the temple, the first six chapters are based on two prominent men, Zerubbabel and this man, Jeshua. Under their leadership, they returned after 70 years of exile and they began an altar, they built an altar and then they built their, their worship center. The temple was rebuilt and now it's his grandson, 90 years later or so. It's his grandson now stepping up to the plate, joining the work that was left to be done. I, I think that is so cool. I hope you do. Because I just wasted two minutes of your life, if not. His name is there for a reason. Nehemiah wanted to show us that he received cooperation from the high priest and the priest, the leaders of that day, that they were working together. In fact, Elisha means Jehovah restores. How appropriate is that? And it's no accident that they begin at the sheep gate. They begin at the sheep gate. It's the northeast corner. I'm going to show you a map in a little while. It's the northeast corner of the wall. It provided access into the temple mount where the, where the sacrificial system was, you know, the sacrifice were being done. And, and there would be easy access for the sheep to come into the gates, come into the wall, come into the city in order to go into the temple area to be sacrificed. So it was a good place. And, and, and I think the principle that we draw from that, that I'd like to draw from that immediately, it was... This is Nehemiah's way of telling you and telling me and telling the people of that day that first things first. That there, was, there had to be priority. He was a, a man who prioritized his life. The wall project begins exactly where it should have begun. And that is the worship of the one true God. The preeminence and priority was set from the very beginning of this building project not just nehemiah but for the people that nehemiah was leading family let this principle sink in first things first first things first there must be consecration a setting apart then a commitment to the task consecration then commitment worship before work there has to be a sense of first things first it's crucial it's critical and I, I think pastors are, are probably the ones who, who fail at this in many ways the most. It's easy to see the work that needs to be done. It's easy to be broken over the despair of people. It is easy to see lives unraveling. It is easy to see the brokenness and people going to hell without Christ and be about the work. I get that. But it's strategizing with prior, without prioritizing. Planning without purpose, that becomes a problem. It's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to lose focus. God is not as interested with your labor as he's interested in your heart, your love and your devotion for him. In a very popular book by Rick Warren, A Purpose Driven Life, uh, it opens with these words. Rick Warren writes, It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. End quote. He correctly points out that life will never make sense Life will never make sense when we are focused on ourselves. But all of life comes into focus when our eyes are fixed upon Christ. You exist only because God wills 
and, and he willed it, and you were made by him. And until you understand that, until you grasp that, life will never make sense. We will discover our purpose in life when we stop this, this futile attempt of trying to make our lives make sense, have meaning, have purpose, have an identity, have significance when it's outside our relationship with God. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you'll get neither. Isaiah 43, 6, I love this verse. God speaking through Isaiah. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You see, the Bible repeats itself over and over and over again that we were made, we were created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likes of God for the express, pression, uh, uh, express reason to declare his glory. And what happens is, if you're anything like me, we, we, we foolishly compartmentalize our life. When the Bible says that our life is hidden with Christ, in Christ, and when Christ, who is our life, will appear, then we will also appear with him in glory. Listen, we bring God glory, purpose in life, when he is our life. That is putting first things first. Christ takes the center stage. Christ is enough. When we see his, his, his multiple excellencies, his moral perfections, his infinite value, that's what glory means, and his incalculable worth, and we are satisfied and fulfilled in him, joy comes, purpose comes. John Piper writes, God's pursuit, listen, God's pursuit of praise from us, God's pursuit of praise from us and our pursuit of pleasure in him are one and the same pursuit. God's quest to be glorified, to, to, to see his weightiness, to see his incalculable worth, God's quest to be glorified and our quest to be satisfied reach their goal in this one experience, our delight in God, which overflows in praise of him. Nehemiah understood what Paul would later say to the church. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory and praise and worship of God. You say, really? I, I don't know. Is that, what, is that what Nehemiah is trying to show us? Nehemiah knew that the work in which he was called to do, he was called to do for the purpose or the singular first purpose in his life was to bring him glory. We, we talked about this before. Let me point it out again. Nehemiah 1.3. The word comes back. He says, the remnant in the providence who have been in exile are in great trouble and shame. Why were they in shame? Because it was their sin. It was the pursuit of their own glory. It was the pursuit of their own lives. It was the pursuit of their own wills. Not the pleasure and pursuit of their God that put them in the exile to begin with. They would not listen to him. Chapter 2, verse 17. It says, we're in trouble. Jerusalem lies in ruins. He says, come, let us build a wall, Jerusalem, that we shall no longer be or we shall no longer suffer derision. Remember, we talked about that reproach. You see, they were pursuing their own glory. They were pursuing their own purposes. And because of that, the glory of God, the display of God's glory, was snuffed out. It was hidden, making them a mockery to the other nations. Where is your God? It was their sin, and they were living in derision. In chapter 6, if you, if you have a Bible, you could turn there if you'd like, or you just, I'm going to read it to you. I just want to jump ahead real quick. Nehemiah and this team build the wall in 52 days. I'll, I'll let the, I'm sorry, that's a spoiler alert, but it's 52 days, they're done with the wall. Okay, in chapter 6, what's so cool about that is when they were done with the wall, the wall is being dedicated and they're, they're done. It says in verse 16, when the enemies heard that the wall was completed and the nations around the city saw it as well, they were afraid. They were awestruck and fell greatly in their own esteem. NIV lost their self-confidence. New Living Translation, greatly disheartened. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They saw, they witnessed the, dis, the display and this, this you know, awesome work that God had accomplished through these people. They saw his glory. They saw the work that he has done and they were not partakers of it. And what happens? Their continents fell. 
They, they, were, they were greatly disheartened. They lost their self-confidence. That's just so interesting. See, it's about the worship of God. It's not just about working on the walls. It's about worshiping their worthy God. The purpose of all ministry and really all of life is the glory of God. Nehemiah knew it and he said we have to set this out. The first priority is that we're not in shame, that we're not in derision, that God gets glory and people who are not connected with that, who are doing their own thing, running their own lives and their own purposes, all of a sudden see the display of God's glory and they're not part of it and they are, it says, greatly disheartened. They lost their confidence. In describing the cast of characters of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes of Repicheep, is the chief mouse. He's a self-appointed, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis writes, he's a self-appointed humble serpent, servant to Prince Caspian, and perhaps the most valiant knight in all of Narnia. The chivalry is unsurpassed, as also his courage and his skill with the sword. Repicheep is, is chivalrous and courageous, because more than anything, more even than his own life, he loves Aslan and Aslan's prince. Valiantly fighting in Prince Caspian, Richard is almost killed and would die, would have died if not for Lucy's ability to heal with the drops from her diamond bottle. He writes, practically raised from the dead, Reepicheep leaps to his feet, you saw the movie, and bows before the lion. Aslan only to realize that he has lost his tail in the battle. He pleads with Aslan to restore his tail, and Aslan discusses with Repicheep whether he thinks too highly of his own honor, represented by his own tail. Aslan sees what Repicheep's fellows mice have done. Why, Aslan says, have your followers all drawn their swords, may I ask? Said Aslan. May it please your highness, said the second mouse. We are all waiting to cut off our own tails if our chief must go without his. We will not bear the shame of wearing an honor which is denied to the high mouse. Ah, roars Aslan, you have conquered me. You have great hearts, not for the sake of your dignity, Repachim, but for the love that is between you and your people. You shall have your tail again. C.S. Lewis writes, Repachim, comrades love him because the mouse was more valiant than most men. His great aim in life was to serve the high cause of the lion, Narnia, and the rightful king. Repicheep was ready to, ready to protect those he loved, ready to stand for truth, goodness, and beauty, and ready to love his friends by laying down his life for them, end quote. Listen, if we're going to live for something more than our own trivial agendas, to make our own names and great our own fame, we must be convinced of the truth, the goodness, the beauty, the glory of God. We must be. If we're going to sacrifice our personal indulgences and, 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 and gains in order to live for the gospel and advance the kingdom and the church, we must not only see, but experience the truth, the goodness, the beauty, and the glory of God in the advancement of the kingdom. It's more than just about us. If we lay down our lives for the gospel, for the church. It would be because we have seen, experienced that life and we've lived in the grace and the truth and the beauty and the glory of God displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Single purpose. A common purpose that he called them to. Secondly, we see a, co a community of workers. This chapter, if you read it, it's just a wonderful chapter about community. The chapter shows us that Nehemiah had this ability to mobilize and to empower actually 40 separate groups of people for one purpose. Enormous effort. 31 times in chapter 3, the verb, the Hebrew verb for rebuilt, to build, to set its doors, and to be repaired is used to describe the work that's being done. The working together, the, this cooperation of God's people seeking the common purpose of displaying the great and good glory of God. And what is seen here in chapter 3 so clearly, and, I, and I, wanna, I have to point this out because it's so much a part of who we are as a church, is that if we're going to display the glory of God and advance God's kingdom, if we're going to be about putting lives together so that it reflects the glory and the, and the, and the, and the treasuring of Christ, we need and must help one another. We need help from one another. We cannot do it alone. I'm not going to go into every single verse in this chapter. You can thank me later. 
But there are three principles I want to draw from chapter 3 that teach us about the work that needs to be done. The first thing is, when we're talking about the community of workers, everyone was expected to be involved. This whole city just about stopped what they were doing for 52 days and began to work together. The whole city. It's amazing. It's amazing and important to see all the types of people, all the numbers of people that God used to rebuild these walls. This chapter of Nehemiah, I think every single commentary I read, uh, really highlights the truth found in 1 Corinthians 12. When the Bible and Paul writes to them that we are one body, we are one body with many parts, right? You remember that passage? We're many members, we're all to drink from the same one spirit, but we are different members of one body, the body of Christ. The foot should not say to the hand, I don't belong to you, the ear. And he goes through that we are one body, but we have different members. They were all given to us, sovereignly given to us by God to serve one another. And, and I believe over the past, I don't know, some of you older than I am, so I'm older than some of you, but I think over the past 40, 50 years maybe, say, the church has had a wonderful shift, I believe necessary shift, from the pastor, you do the work, who else is on staff, you do the work, to that we're all called to do the work. We're all called to live on mission. It's not just me evangelizing and teaching and counseling and serving and and, and being all these different hats. It's about us together. We're all gifted together. We've all been given a gift to live on mission, to build one another up, to declare and demonstrate the gospel. We're all called to serve, to minister, to care, to love people. The ministry belongs to the whole congregation. And chapter 3 teaches us clearly about that. Look at verse 1. It began with the leaders. They set the example. But it takes all kinds of people. In fact, verse 14 of chapter 3, all the way through 18, six rulers are mentioned. So rulers are mentioned. They're getting their hands dirty. Verse 8 says, Next to them, Uzel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths. It also says they were perfumers who repaired. So God takes these different people and different talents and gifts Priests, goldsmiths, perfume uh, makers, city officials, temple servants, city you know, guards and merchants. Everyone was expected to get involved in the ministry. Everyone from different backgrounds, different trades, um, uh, different experiences were asked, were asked to help. You know who's not missing? If you read this chapter, when you get home, you can read this chapter. You know what's missing from the list of people and the different backgrounds? Construction workers. Nothing personal against you guys. I love you. As Bill, uh, Bill Blake likes to tell me, put the hammer down, I'll be right over. You know, some people just know what they're doing. I'm not one of them. But like, there's no bricklayers. And there's, there's no bricklayers. It's like, you know, I, I think that's funny. And it's an encouragement to me that God uses ordinary people who are willing to sacrifice and to serve for his glory. He uses them. One of my favorite verses, look at verse 12. He uses everybody. Verse 12, my favorite verse of chapter 3. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halash, ruler of the half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. The four of them. I like that verse. Go clean your room. Look, it says right there, repaired with him and his daughters. Guys and dolls working together. Everyone in the church has gifts and talents given to them by God. Um, let me give you, I was going to put it up, I don't have it. If you want, I can email it to you. Let me give you King's Chapel definition of spiritual gifts. Every single Christian, I believe, Scripture teaches, has at least one gift. Here's the spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is an ability, an ability sovereignly given, not your choice, sovereignly given and empowered by God for His glory used in the building up of the body of Christ, the work of the ministry, and the advancement of the kingdom. Let me say it again. Spiritual gifts is an ability that's been sovereignly given by God. Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 clearly teaches that. Sovereignly given to God, empowered by God for His glory. Okay? Used in the building up the body, work of the ministry, and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Everyone has one. Everyone has been gifted. Everyone. For that reason, to build each other up, to labor in ministry, to live on mission. Every single one of us has been given a gift. Sometimes in church, sometimes in church, it's more like a football game. 60,000 people watching. 
in the stands who desperately need to get on the field and do some exercise while there's a dozen or two on the field who desperately need to take a break. Right? As I read this chapter and I look at the people involved, it certainly seems to me that the qualification was just availability and a willingness to get involved. It's good to know what you're doing. It's actually even better to not only know what you're doing, but to do it well. But I can't help read these passages and think that not everybody was like familiar with a hammer. Like there had to be some people showing, you know, there's just all these people getting involved, perfume, I mean, just no one knew, but they said, count me in for God's glory, for God's glory, I'm in, okay? So our text tells us that there's a place for everyone and a job for everyone to do, right? No person can do everything, but everybody can do something. Now, on our website, kingschapel.net, you will find a place for ministry, get connected to ministry. You have a gift, you have a talent, you have abilities that we don't know, and we suffer because you're not using your talents and gifts. We need to make room for you, we need, to, we need to send you out, I get that. Please go to our website. Even if it's your home during the day and you could drive someone somewhere, or you could make a meal for some, something, that you feel this is what I want to contribute as the body of Christ, to serve kingschapel.net, ministry, fill out the sheet, send it to us. Send it to us. We'd love to get that assessment. There's also a spiritual gift assessment if you never filled one of those out. They're not 100%, all right? They're not 100%. They can't hear you sing whether you can hold the tune or not. So don't, don't count on that. But it'll get you some idea, okay? So everyone was expected to be involved. Number two, everyone worked together. The wall was divided in different sections and everybody was given a section. But what you'll find in this passage, it says, so-and-so built next to so-and-so. And they built next to so-and-so, next to so-and-so. So there's this building, there's this everyone's working together, even though they have their own sections, they're all working in you know, conjunction with one another. Just think. Think of the wall of Jerusalem, the building section by section, working together, closing the wall, and then you, after you have 52 days to, to, to build, so say two weeks. Two weeks into it, you and your family are out there working on the wall, and you're going to join so-and-so down there. You see them but you're not there yet. And you think as you get close, you're like, you know what? Ah, let me build a coffee shop. Let me just stop. I'm just going to put out the awning, get some coffee, call the community. It wouldn't work. They all had one purpose. They were all working together for one purpose, to do the work that they were called to do. There was unity, a singular mission, cooperation together. They work together. There is unity. A singular mission does not mean conformity. People think that you have to conform to everyone else's perspectives and different views. That's not, there was one view that they had. There was one purpose. Unity does not mean openness for everything. It doesn't mean uniformity. People were different. They have different social backgrounds, economic backgrounds. There was probably different people in different education backgrounds. There are differences. Unity, let me tell you what unity is. Unity is not conformity. Unity is not uniformity. Unity begins with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't say let's work for unity. What we say is let's love Jesus, treasure Jesus, follow Jesus, hear the voice of Jesus, live on mission with Jesus. Then we'll have unity. Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I do not ask for these alone, but those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Family unity is a byproduct. Following, serving, loving, on mission with Jesus. If Jesus, who is the gospel, is at the center, then you can have unity because it's around him. It's around his work, his mission. Even if you're you're like, let's have unity around a good cause or something that's really, you know, stirs me up. You won't have unity. But when Jesus is at the center, things flow from that. Like Nehemiah, unity can happen when you have a singular purpose, the work that is before you. So, look at verse 5. 
I don't have it up. Verse 5. And next to them, Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Nehemiah's like, all these people are serving, and these people are serving, and these people are serving, and these people are serving. Oh, by the way, these people are not. (laughs) They're the goof-offs, right? Let that sink in. God keeps record of those who work hard, and God keeps records of those who sit on the sidelines. I heard about a union meeting one time, and a representative was there, and he said, I have great news. The representative said, I have great news to the workers. The management has lightened the workload 70%. Everybody shouted, hooray. We no longer have to work at four, uh, finish work at four. We get out uh, at three. Hooray. We have a 150% raise. Everybody shouted, terrific. We don't start at 9 a.m. We start at 10. Everybody is shouting. The place is going wild. And he stands up and he says, and from now on, we only work on Wednesdays. Quiet. Somebody from the back has said, every Wednesday? <laughs> there are those who take their place on the wall. There are those who are counted. There are those who say, I'm, I'm, I'm not the foot, I'm the hand, I'm the eye, I'm the finger. Whatever I am, count me in. And there are those who just sit back and are not counted in. I pray that you will not be one of those, that God will write down your name on the column. Look at verse, look at, uh, verse 27. Those who work, those who don't work, verse 27, after him the Tekoites repaired another section. Underline that, another section. Opposite the great uh, projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Okay? What they're saying is they finished the work that was before them and then they went on to a second project. In fact, it's mentioned um, how many times? Seven times. Seven times in, the t- in this text, people started a second project. So I'll, 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 those who work, those who don't work, and those who work double. So you see what he's saying? Those are, they're really involved. So everyone was expected to get involved. Everyone worked together in unity. And third, everyone worked where they were called. Okay? Everyone worked where they were called. Now, if you're reading this narrative... You will see some of the workers live in Jerusalem, some of the workers live near Jericho, and they're all coming together for the specific project. Look at verse 10. Next to him, Jodahai, the son of repaired opposite the house, verse 23. Benjamin, Heshev, repaired opposite their house. Azariah, the son of Messah, son of Haniah, repaired beside his own house. Go down to verse 30. It says, Mishlam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. What that means is it's a bachelor pad. Right, it's not a house, it's a chamber, right? And here's the principle. Each one of you, each one of you, that includes me, right? Each one of you has been placed on this earth and God has determined the allotted periods of time in which you would be born and the boundaries of your dwelling place, Acts 27 tells us. God has uniquely gifted each and every one of you. Each and every one of you, God has gifted you to share, to to reach, to love, to demonstrate, to declare Christ to your specific neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow students, and others that you come in contact with throughout your day of the good news of Jesus Christ. John 15, Jesus says to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, should last. The word appointment means strategically placed. That's what Jesus is saying. You're strategically placed. It's beautiful in this neighborhood. People living on mission in a specific place on the wall, coming from locality right in Jerusalem, coming from other areas together, right where they are, serving God intentionally, doing what God has called them to do. Family, are you intentional? Are you intentional where God has placed you in the time and the allocation of determining places where God, are you intentional? Let me, let me give you, and we'll move on to the next point, the final point. Let me give you eight things, okay? I, I can email this to you if you want, but let me just give you eight things that a man by the name of Jonathan Dobson, he's, he wrote a, an article in the Resurgence, uh, uh, resurgence.com. It's a great website. And he says, here's eight ways to live intentionally on mission, Demonstrating and declaring the gospel to the world around us intentionally, doing it with a purpose. Number one, eat with non-Christians. 
He says you have three meals a day. Make it a habit of bringing people who don't know Christ to a meal, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, a family. Eat with those who don't know Christ. Number two, walk. In areas where you can walk and get to meet people, that's a good thing to do. In a neighborhood, apartment complex, say hello to people, engage people, you know, deliberately walk, take interest in your neighborhood. So eat with Christians, walk, be a regular. Stop at local stores regularly, get guests at a place regularly, get coffee at a place regularly, and strike conversations. Show them that you care, pray for them, love them. They'll know that you care about them when you ask them questions. Hobby, get a hobby with someone who's not a believer that you can spend time with, something they enjoy, something you enjoy. Maybe you have a hobby that you can teach others and get to know people, sewing or piano or tennis or whatever it is. Be prayerful, be intentional. Strike up conversations with your coworkers. Take breaks together. Go out with your team. Show, pray for your coworkers. Talk with them. Number six, volunteer for nonprofit. Volunteer for places that you can join the community and serve your city, serve your community. So participate in community, right? He writes, instead of playing Xbox, watching TV or surfing the net, participate in the community events. And last, serve your neighborhood, the street you live on. We should not, and and I know some of you are are introverts, I get that. Maybe you have to work harder at it. I work harder at keeping my mouth shut and let them talk. Some people need to work harder at opening their mouth and letting them listen. I get that. You know, typical, but that doesn't, doesn't negate the reality that we are to serve our neighbors and love them and care for them and serve them and show them the love of Christ. Get involved. Listen to their stories. Look for ways to bridge. Pray. Be intentional. So everyone was expected to be involved. Everyone worked together. Everyone worked where they were called. Number three, communion. Now, let me give you this map real quick. That's the walls of Jerusalem. And you could see um, up to the top is the fish gate, the old gate, and the walls and the valley gates and, and the houses. You could see, and you could dung gate here on the bottom, the fountain gate. So what Nehemiah, chapter three, what he does is he begins with the, the sheep gate i got my little thing here. He begins with the sheep gate, if you can see that. Um, right here, sheep gate. And then he works counterclockwise in chapter 3 about all these walls and other, other gates. These squares, the gates. gates. And he works around, all the way around, and he begins and he ends in chapter 3 with the sheep gate. So he begins with the sheep gate, then he goes from the sheep gate to the fish gate, okay, and then all the way down to the old gate. The valley gate, and he goes all the way around in chapter 3. So that kind of gives you a, a picture of what's going on. Now, over the years, many Bible teachers, and you read some commentaries, will tell you that each one of these gates has a specific meaning pointing to Christ. Okay. It's true. You can, you can, you can get crazy with allegorizing or what they call uh, typology and really make the Scripture say whatever you want. Jesus walked on water. The water re- represents... I don't know, the, the, the Jerusalem fight against ISIS. You know, anything you could just make up, you allegorize the text. People get very, very, very off track, drinking Kool-Aid, wearing sneakers with coins in their pockets. You don't want to allegorize text to that point, okay? Trust me. But there are some things in Scripture that kind of point to us or kind of as a type of and look to Jesus. And that's what they do at each one of the gates. I'm not going to read each one of you, but I think it's rather interesting. Some of the gates point to the reality of Christ. So let me just give you a couple. Number one, the fish gate, right? We're going we're to end on the sheep gate, but he goes around and then we got the fish gate. The fish gate was the place where the people would bring fish in from the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It would be the only gate that you could smell your way to. You would know where the fish gate is. If you're not sure where Jerusalem was or the, where the gate are or you're kind of first time in the city, meet me at the fish gate, smell it, you'll get there. That's easy to do. That's what would happen, right? But the Bible tells us that Master Jesus calls us to himself and he says what? I will make you fisher of men. Then there's the fountain gate, verse 15. It was by the pool of Siloam. It was by the water tunnel by, built by King Hezekiah. We know in John 4, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman who was, tried just about everything in her life to find contentment and happiness. Five husbands, they weren't satisfying her. She was always thirsty, and Jesus says, What? Whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. 
the fountain gate. And as you work your way clockwards, as you get toward the end, there's what is called the east gate. That's the gate on the eastern side opposite of the temple. It is the gate that would be the first gate when the sun would rise coming through that gate. Legend says that Jesus came through the east gate on Palm Sunday. Scripture doesn't say it, but that's what, that's what the, the, uh, some of the people in antiquity say. The gate speaks of hope. It speaks of anticipation because Ezekiel prophesies that the glory of the Lord is at that gate and that it departed from the gate and someday the Messiah will come through that gate. So that gate points to the expectation, the promises of Christ, that no matter what happens in despair and what happens in our lives, there's always hope. There's always hope. As you work your way around, there's the mustard gate. Uh, that's, the, that's the last gate. The mustard gate, is the Hebrew means to appoint. It was a place where the, the troops would gather and they would get uh, uh, inspection time. It would be inspection time at the mustard gate and they would be inspected. If you're familiar with Hebrews in the Old Test, New Testament, it says in chapter 9, and just as is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. It's inspection time. It's inspection time. God is inspecting God. The followers of Christ will stand before Jesus to give an account of whether they've done good or evil, not for their sins, but what they've done with the truth before they enter into the glorious presence, uh, eternal presence of Christ. And those who reject Christ, the Bible says, will stand in judgment and inspection because they have not trusted in the one who died for their sins and hell awaits them. But know what the good news is? When you get to that gate, when you go all the way around and you get to the mustard gate where inspection time has come, if you go back to where you first started, it is the sheep gate. It is the sheep gate. Verse 32, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. The sheep, as I said, were the place where the sheep would come in for the temple and to be sacrificed. It is the only gate that is sanctified is the only gate that is consecrated to God in a very special way. And years later, after this temple was built, John the Baptist sees Jesus in the wilderness as he begins his ministry and says what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sheep gate reminds us clearly that Jesus is the true and the better Lamb. Because every sheep that came through that gate on the way to sacrifice, every sheep that was on their way to the way to be sacrificed can never really take away sins, but only pointed to the one who would. Jesus sacrifices, takes our sins, dies as our substitute in our place, dies on the cross, and the Bible calls it the atonement, at one meant. Where there was a broken relationship, there can be oneness again. Your sin and my sin has separated us from our God. It created a barrier that needed to be atoned, a barrier that needed to be reconciled. And then Jesus comes. He's the Lamb of God. He sheds his blood. He dies for the penalty of sin so that he can forgive us. He comes humbly as a man. He comes into human history. He lives a life that we could never live, a life without sin. He dies a death we should, ne- we should have died, that death, the penalty for sin. In our place. And then on the cross, what does Jesus say? It is finished. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't work toward it. Christ fulfills all of Old Testament, all the sacrificial system, dies as an atoning sacrifice for all your sins. And then three days later, rises from the dead. Proof. Proof that his sin sacrifice has been accepted by the Father. He rose victorious over sin and death. All the work of salvation is done. You see this bread on the table, the wine and the cup. They, they, are, they are symbolic of the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. It's, we don't literally eat Jesus. We don't literally drink, drink Jesus, right? But we partake of the Lord's Supper and the Holy Spirit uses the symbolic message that Jesus is our spiritual nourishment. He is the bread of life, born in Bethlehem, which means bread of life. Communion serves to strengthen our faith. It becomes our access into, into the, the very communion with God in a very, very special way. Faith is that mystical union with Christ. And therefore, when we take this, this cup and we, and we break the bread, looking at the body that was shed, the blood that was poured out, we remember. We reflect and remember that sacrifice. 
But it's not only a time of memorializing. It's not only a time of remembering. In a very real sense, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, victorious over sin, live forevermore, by and through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is inviting you to lay down your life because he laid down his life for you. To come to the table, Jesus is inviting you to come. If you've never trusted Christ, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you haven't trusted his atoning work, today's the day. To say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against you. I've lived for my own glory, my own purposes, but that's ending today. You're the great God who died for me, who rose for me. I want to embrace you. I want to love you. I want to walk with you today. And we embrace him. Using the Son as an illustration, John Calvin says about the communion. Christ is present influentially the sun remains in the heaven yet its warmth and light are present on earth so the radiance of the spirit conveys to us the communion of christ this table is not a baptist table it's not a king's chapel table it is a table of the lord and jesus himself invites you if you belong to him to come to break the bread to drink the cup to commune with him and to commune with one another it's it's a communal meal but if you don't know jesus the bible calls you to repentance That means to turn from your own purposes, turn from your own way, turn from running your own life and turn from that and walk with him and turn to Christ, to repent, to turn and trust Jesus as your only Lord, the only Savior, victorious over sin, death and hell. If you've never done that as the band plays, I want to invite you to trust Christ and then come take communion. If you're not sure and you're still uncertain about your relationship with Christ, sit, pray, sing, talk to one of the elders. You saw us up here before. We'd love to talk to you more about Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the story of Nehemiah as you have carefully allowed us to read it, to see you through it. Lord, we thank you that we have been called to this place as a church for the singular purpose of giving you glory. Lord, we do that by living on mission with you. We do that by declaring and demonstrating the gospel. The greatest glory displayed in all the earth, in all eternity, is is the gospel, is the cross. It's Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior. Father, we pray that as a church, we will not sit idly by on the sidelines, but be actively involved in loving people and sharing with people, declaring to people in love the good news of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, he forgives all those who call upon him. So, Father, we ask that you would just work in our hearts Work in our lives, Lord, that we see you and glory in you and help us, Lord, to open our mouths and not to be ashamed and not to be afraid, but lovingly caring and and lovingly sharing with people the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice and atoning work. Thank you that we can come and have our sins forgiven. Thank you that you rose victorious and the tomb is empty and you're alive forevermore. Father, we love you. And as we respond in this song, may our hearts be us just together in purpose to give you glory and praise in jesus name we pray amen